This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Anderson. Irrawan by Samuel Butler. Chapter 1 Wastelands. If the reader will excuse me, I will say nothing of my antecedents, nor of the circumstances which led me to leave my native country. The narrative would be tedious to him and painful to myself. Suffice it that when I left home it was with the intention of going to some new colony, and either finding, or even perhaps purchasing, waste crown land suitable for cattle or sheep farming, by which means I thought that I could better my fortunes more rapidly than in England. It will be seen that I did not succeed in my design, and that however much I may have met with that was new and strange, I have been unable to reap any pecuniary advantage. It is true I imagine myself to have made a discovery which, if I can be the first to profit by it, will bring me a recompense beyond all money computation, and secure me a position such as not been attained by more than some fifteen or sixteen persons since the creation of the universe. But to this end I must possess myself of a considerable sum of money. Neither do I know how to get it, except by interesting the public in my story, and inducing the charitable to come forward and assist me. With this hope I now publish my adventures, but I do so with great reluctance, for I fear that my story will be doubted, unless I tell the whole of it, and yet I dare not do so, lest others with more means than mine should get the start of me. I prefer the risk of being doubted to that of being anticipated, and have therefore concealed my destination on leaving England, as also the point from which I began my more serious and difficult journey. My chief consolation lies in the fact that truth bears its own impress, and that my story will carry conviction by reason of the internal evidences for its accuracy. No one who is himself honest will doubt my being so. I reached my destination in one of the last months of 1868 but I dare not mention the season, lest the reader should gather in which hemisphere I was. The colony was one which had not been opened up even to the most adventurous settlers for more than eight or nine years, having been previously uninhabited, save by a few tribes of savages who frequented the seaboard. The part known to Europeans consisted of a coastline about eight hundred miles in length, affording three or four good harbors, an attractive country extending inland for a space varying from two to three hundred miles until it reached the offshoots of an exceedingly lofty range of mountains, which could be seen from far out upon the plains, and were covered with perpetual snow. The coast was perfectly well known both north and south of the tract to which I have alluded, but in neither direction was there a single harbor for five hundred miles, and the mountains, which descended almost into the sea, were covered in thick timber, so that none would think of settling. With this bay of land, however, the case was different. The harbors were sufficient, the country was timbered, but not too heavily. It was admirably suited for agriculture. It also contained millions on millions of acres of the most beautifully grass country in the world, and of the best suited for all manners of sheep and cattle. The climate was temperate and very healthy. There were no wild animals, nor were the natives dangerous, being few in number and of an intelligent, tractable disposition. It may be readily understood that once Europeans set foot upon this territory, they were not slow to take advantage of its capabilities. Sheep and cattle were introduced and bred with extreme rapidity. Men took up their 50,000 or 100,000 acres of country, going inland one behind the other, till in a few years there was not an acre between the sea and the front ranges which was not taken up, 
and stations either for sheep or cattle were spotted, about at intervals of some twenty or thirty miles over the whole country. The front ranges stopped the tide of squatters for some little time. It was thought that there was too much snow upon them for too many months in the year, and that the sheep would get lost, the ground being too difficult for shepherding, that the expense of getting wool down to the ship's side would eat up the farmer's profits, and that the grass was too rough and sour for sheep to thrive upon. But one after another determined to try the experiment, and it was wonderful how successfully it turned out. Men pushed farther and farther into the mountains, and found a very considerable tract inside the front range, between it and another which was loftier still, though even this was not the highest, the great snowy one which could be seen from out upon the plains. This second range, however, seemed to mark the extreme limits of pastoral country, and it was here, at a small and newly founded station, that I was received as a cadet, and soon regularly employed. I was then just twenty-two years old. I was delighted with the country and the manner of life. It was my daily business to go up to the top of a certain high mountain, and down one of its spurs on to the flat in order to make sure that no sheep had crossed their boundaries. I was to see the sheep not necessarily close at hand, nor to get them in a single mob, but to see enough of them here and there to feel easy that nothing had gone wrong. This was no difficult matter, for there were not above eight hundred of them, and being all breeding ewes, they were pretty quiet. There were a good many sheep which I knew, as two or three black ewes, and a black lamb or two, and several others which had some distinguishing mark whereby I could tell them. I would try to see all of these, and if they were all there, and the mob looked large enough, I might rest assured that all was well. It is surprising how soon the eye becomes accustomed to missing twenty sheep, out of two or three hundred. I had a telescope and a dog, and would take bread and meat and tobacco with me. Starting with early dawn, it would be night before I could complete my round for the mountain over which I had to go was very high. In winter it was covered with snow, and the sheep needed no watching from above. If I were to see sheep dung or tracks going down onto the other side of the mountain, where there was a valley with a stream, a mere cul-de-sac, I was to follow them and look out for sheep. But I never saw any, the sheep always descending on their own side, partly from habit and partly because there was an abundance of good sweet feed, which had been burnt in the early spring just before I came and was now deliciously green and rich, while that on the other side had never been burnt and was rank and coarse. It was a monotonous life, but it was very healthy, and one does not much mind anything when one is well. The country was the grandest that can be imagined. How often have I sat on the mountainside and watched the waving downs, with the two white specks of huts in the distance, and the little square of garden behind them, the paddock with a patch of bright green oats above the huts, and the yards and wool-sheds down on the flat below. All seen as through the wrong end of a telescope, so clear and brilliant was the air, or as upon a colossal model or map spread out beneath me. Beyond the downs was a plain, going down to a river of great size, on the farther side of which there were other high mountains, with the winter snow still not quite melted. Up the river, which ran winding in many streams, over a bed some two miles broad, I looked upon the second-grade chain, and could see a narrow gorge where the river retired and was lost. I knew that there was a range still farther back, but except from one place near the very top of my own mountain, no part of it was visible. From this point, however, I saw, whenever there were no clouds, a single snow-clad peak, many miles away, and I should think about as high as any mountain in the world. Never shall I forget the utter loneliness of the prospect, only the little far-away homestead giving sign of human handiwork the vastness of mountain and plain, 
of river and sky, the marvelous atmospheric effects. Sometimes black mountains against a white sky, and then again, after cold weather, white mountains against a black sky, sometimes seen through breaks and swirls of cloud, and sometimes, which was best of all, I went up my mountain in a fog, and then got above the mist, going higher and higher. I would look down upon a sea of whiteness, through which would be thrust innumerable mountain tops that looked like islands. I am there now as I write. I fancy I can see the downs, the huts, the plain, and the river-bed, that torrent pathway of desolation, and its distant roar of waters. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! So lonely and so solemn, with the sad gray clouds above, and no sound save a lost lamb bleeding upon the mountainside, as though its little heart were breaking. Then there comes some lean and withered old ewe, with deep gruff voice and unlovely aspect, trotting back from the seductive pasture. Now she examines the scully, and now that, and now she stands listening with uplifted head, that she may hear the distant wailing, and obey it. Aha! they see, and rush toward each other. Alas! they are both mistaken. The ewe is not the lamb's ewe. They are neither kin nor kind to one another, and part in coldness. Each must cry louder, and wander farther yet. May luck be with them both, that they may find their own at nightfall. But this is mere dreaming, and I must proceed. I could not help speculating upon what might lie further up the river and behind the second range. I had no money, but if I could only find workable country, I might stock it with borrowed capital, and consider myself a made man. True, the range looked so vast that there seemed little chance of getting a sufficient road through or over it, but no one had yet explored it and it is wonderful how one finds that one can make a path into all sorts of places, and even get a road for pack-horses, which from a distance appear inaccessible. The river was so great that it must drain an inner tract, at least I thought so, and though every one said it would be madness to attempt taking sheep further inland, I knew that only three years ago the same cry had been raised against the country, which my master's flock was now overrunning. I could not keep these thoughts out of my head, as I would rest myself upon the mountainside, they haunted me as I went my daily rounds, and grew upon me from hour to hour, till I resolved that after shearing I would remain in doubt no longer, but saddle my horse, take as much provision with me as I could, and go see for myself. But over and above these thoughts came that of the great range itself. What was beyond it? Ah, who could say? There was no one in the whole world who had the smallest idea, save those who were themselves on the other side of it. If indeed there was any one at all, could I hope to cross it? This would be the highest triumph that I could wish for, but it was too much to think of yet. I would try the nearer range, and see how far I could go. Even if I did not find country, might I not find gold, or diamonds, or copper, or silver? I would sometimes lie flat down to drink out of a stream, and could see little yellow specks among the sand. Were these gold? People said no, but then people always said there was no gold until it was found to be abundant. There was plenty of slate and granite, which I had always understood to accompany gold, and even though it was not found in paying quantities here, it might be abundant in the main ranges. These thoughts filled my head, and I could not banish them. End of chapter 1